Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Turn to uh, the book of Mark, first chapter of Mark. We're going to, we're, we're looking at the uh, the beginnings of each gospel, as we look at the beginnings of Christ's earthly ministry um, at His coming uh, each week, uh, we started with John. Now we'll go jump back to Mark, and then uh, move a little bit as we go through each of the gospels. Uh, one thing I'll add to the announcements that was that was mentioned as our Christmas Eve service comes up, we do get we do uh, do a lot of social media um, advertising about that and promotions. We do print advertisements for that as well with some posters and some uh, little hand cards. They're in the, they're in the uh, great room as you leave or as you move about today when you're done. If, uh, our, our best version of getting that out to the community is that if you take a couple and put them in places that you, that you know will, uh, that will allow that sort of thing, um, that can happen most effectively and easily. So we encourage you to do that. Just take a stack um, or one or two posters or whatnot and then put them where you think uh, they would be most visible and, and possible for folks to know in our community that they're welcome to be a part of things. Please don't make a nuisance of yourself when you do that. So, so religious people are, so, are the worst. So, I'll turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to read this first uh, section. One of the things that's, that's curious to, to me as, uh, as we approach um, Christmas, as we, as we uh, uh, focus our attention on the advent of Christ, is the, the biographers of Jesus that we have in the Scriptures... Um, not all of them, as a matter of fact, half of them don't even start with the details of Jesus' birth. Two of them, we looked at one last week, starts with, a, uh, starts with sort of a prologue talking about in metaphoric terms about the, about the grandness and about, about the, uh, the spiritual nature of Jesus' birth and then, and then, uh, and then goes right into his ministry. Um, Mark does the same thing. Mark doesn't start, the, the, uh, this gospel writer, this, when he's talking about the life of Christ, he doesn't start with the details of his birth. Most, most biographers, um, if you were to pick up a modern day biography, starts with the humble beginnings of, of whatever person they're writing about. Um, and the thing that we focus on at Christmas is often the details, the angels, the shepherds, the magi, the manger. Uh, we, put our, we put our little manger scenes out on our, on our displays at Christmas. But um, the thing that's curious to me is the gospel writers, when they started with the ministry of Christ, at least, at least a couple of them, half of them, began with, with, uh, began with other focus when it came to the beginning of Jesus the description of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And we're going to look at that this morning in Mark a little bit. Uh, chapter 1, follow along as I read. Starting in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you not just for your word which we read, but for the word who became flesh and dwelled, made his dwelling among us. Lord, we thank you that you were not put off by our betrayal, by our darkness, by our sin, by our brokenness, but that you came to come to, to, to care for us and to, and to redeem that which was lost, broken, and dead. Lord, I pray that you would do the same today in our own hearts, lost, blind, dead, betrayed, as they are. Do that for your name's sake and for the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have we solved the great age-old debate that occurs this time of year, long since past? Have we solved it yet? When does Christmas begin? When when does the Christmas season start? I don't I, I don't know. I mean, there's always the there's always the uh, you know it starts when uh, Walmart puts up their Christmas display. I don't know is that when it starts or when they when you hear the first Christmas song, and when when does Christmas music begin now? I don't know. It used to, it, it always, it, I, I love Christmas so much, I don't really care. I, lo, I mean, it, it could start in June as far, for, as, far as I'm concerned and, and just run right on through the rest of the season. I love, I love Christmas. I love all the little details. I love all the little memories. I love making memories. I love all the music. I sing it every day. It's, a, it's, been, in, it's been on in my car for, ever since it started, which was, I don't know when. When did it, did it start before Thanksgiving this year? I don't remember when it, Probably, but it's, I love it. And some people are like, it can't start before Thanksgiving. It can't start before, and then if it starts, it can't start till the first Sunday, can't start till the first Sunday of Advent or first Sunday of December. I don't know when it is. But, uh, but for John, or for Mark, Christmas begins, uh, Christmas begins in the wilderness. That's the thing that strikes me about the beginning of this section is that when, when, when Mark is dis, dis, t- talking about the, the Christmas, when he's talking about the coming of Christ, when he's talking about the advent, the beginning of his mention of Jesus and his launch into who he is and what he is about, the encouraging thing that John tells us is that, or that Mark tells us, I'm going to do that all morning probably, so whenever I sit, whenever, well, I'll make note of it. The thing that Mark tells us is that Christmas begins in the wilderness, and that's encouraging news. It's because when, when Jesus came, when Jesus comes, he comes to the darkest, most desolate place. I love the old word that the old King James used to, used to use there, wilderness. Wilderness is that... Uh, the Christmas begins, Christmas comes first to the most dark, the most desolate, the driest place on the planet. 
in the wilderness, a wild place, as, as one theologian puts it. He liked the, he liked the word wilderness as I was, as I was reading this. He's, he liked the word wilderness because it had the word wild in it. It's a wild place. It's an untamed place. It's a place where you can't count on anything. Nothing is for certain. And everything is at risk when you're in the wilderness. And there's so much of life that seems at risk, that seems unpredictable, that seems wild about what, we, uh, about what we go through. There's so much about our lives that are dark. In the day and age in which Mark is writing this, there were no modern conveniences. You, you and I, um, Becky and I had the privilege of traveling uh, out west a number of years ago. And... Uh, one of the things we were at, one of the places where we had hoped to go, which we didn't actually get to, we went in order to, in order to get to the Sequoias, which Becky was very eager to go to see, we had to skip by a place I wanted to see, we both wanted to see, was Death Valley. It's a desert. Death Valley. But we wanted to see Death Valleys because they say in Death Valley you can see the stars, you can see, you can see the Milky Way so brilliantly in, the, in Death Valley because it's so dark. And the reason we were able to, the reason we had even the, the, the desire or the willingness to go to Death Valley, who would go to a place called Death Valley? Why do you, why do you go to a place called Death Valley? Well, because we have, we have modern conveniences. We have a car. We can get in and out of it easily as long as there's fuel in the car to get in and out of it. There's a road that goes to and through, paved through Death Valley. There's lights on my car that get me into Death Valley that, so that then I can turn those lights off. But I know I turn them off because I know I can turn them back on again. And my car has a heater because of the gas that's in the car that gets me to and from and so forth. You get what I'm getting at is that in our day and age with modern conveniences, I'm not afraid to go to Death Valley. Death Valley is less threatening to me now than, than Death Valley was in the day and age that Mark is writing in the day when Jesus existed is the desert was not a place you went to for sightseeing. The wilderness wasn't a place you just, oh, let's go out to the wilderness. You didn't take a picnic out to the wilderness. You avoided the wilderness. And there's a sense where you and I, in our lives, you don't want any part of the wilderness of life. The dark place, the place of uncertainty, the place that's dry, the place that's unpredictable and wild. You don't want any part of that place in your life. When life gets to that place, when life goes down that road, when your living room becomes a wilderness, has that ever happened? Happens in my grandkids' house every day between four and six. It's a wild place. And even with modern conveniences, I don't like going there. That's not true. But it's a wilderness because it's a wild place. It's a place of unpredictability. It's a place, it's a place where anything can happen and where if something's going to go wrong, it's going to happen in the place of wilderness. It's going to happen in the place of dark, dry, 
desolation. And those are the places of life that we don't want to go and that the encouraging thing about the gospel of grace, the encouraging thing that Mark tells us is that Christmas comes there. That's where Christmas starts. When Christmas entered the world, when Jesus, when Mark talks about the person of Jesus and he is coming, that the story begins, for, for Mark, the story begins, the beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel. Mark says it starts in the desolate, dry, dark places of life and of our world. Which means that when you and I are in those places, not because we went there for sightseeing, but because we couldn't help but go those places, because those places, in a sense, overtake us. The wilderness, it's not as if I'm, it's not as if I'm headed for the wilderness ever, or that you and I are ever headed for the wilderness in our lives. It's that the wilderness suddenly overcomes us in life. The wilderness of, of relationships or the wilderness of, spirit, of a soul wilderness, so a wilderness of finance, a wilderness of, of a failed success, a wilderness of loneliness, a wilderness of death or loss, grief. It's not as if we're headed down those roads, but when they overcome us, the encouraging thing about this is that Christmas comes to the wilderness. Jesus sees. It's, all, it's almost as if Jesus, it, it, there's a sense where visually, mentally, when I think of this passage, that when Jesus was about to approach the world, when he was, when he was in his heavenly throne and about to take off his, his, his princely garb to take on human form, it's almost as if he said, where's the worst place I could start where is, when I look at the earth as broken as it's become, where can I go to let people know I'm starting at the bottom? The wilderness. Even his birth, even, even, the, even the birth that we have mentioned in Luke. Jesus came to a, to a poor woman, a single teenage pregnant mom, outcast and even when and even when he was try, trying to find a place to be born they didn't have any room they sent him to a stable always to, to the smelly to the to the place where animals lived and ate and messed that's where Jesus comes to the broken to the messy that's the kind of king we have. That's the kind of savior. But here's the other side of that, lest, lest we, we jump too quickly. The hope is that no matter what wilderness you're in, no matter what wilderness you may go through, no matter what brokenness and dark place, no matter what unpredictable course that we're in, the gospel, Christmas comes to you there. There is hope there. There is opportunity there. There is grace in those places. The other side of that coin is, is that you can't really have Christmas unless you're in the wilderness. You meet Jesus in the wilderness. It's the only place. It's the only place to meet Jesus. It's the best place to meet Jesus. 
It's the best place to, to have Christ begin in your life. It's the only place because we don't ever need Jesus until he's all we have. Because Jesus, having Jesus means the surrender of every part of me, the surrender of who I am, of what I want, of what, I, what I've been using to, to, to manage, to, to drive my life. You know, the number one, if not the only, the primary, the primary driver, the primary motivator of everything we do apart from Christ the primary motivator of the human heart, of the human soul, of the human condition in our world, it could be, a case could be made that there is one predominant motivator, one predominant drive of the, of the human spirit. It is fear. It is fear. Fear of the loss of something I desperately want. Fear of missing out. Fear of not having, fear of not achieving, fear of what people will think, fear of everything. Jesus and the gospel has come in, and that wilderness, that fear is, an, is a wilderness unto itself. It's a dark desert unto itself, that, that motivator of fear. Why, why do you think, think even in your own life and in your own heart, in your own experiences, in your job, in your relationships, in, your, in, in, the, in the choices that you make? What is motivating those things? What is it, what are you motivated by? Does it boil down to fear in some respects of what people will think or of what will happen? Sometimes I'll ask that question in our own family. I'll ask it. To Becky, when 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 the things start to overcome, and and I, and she asks it back to me. It's not a it's not a uh, it's not a condemning thing, but we ask each other this question often: is when things start to start feeling overwhelmed, especially around the Christmas season. I'll go, well, what happens if you don't do that? What happens if you don't? Well, if I don't, this will happen. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, if that happens, then the kids will this, and the thing will that, and then we won't have. What is what's behind that? fear. And that wilderness, that wilderness is the heart desperately seeking to have my, to have my life fulfilled by all these things which I have no control over. And that wilderness, the gospel comes into that. The gospel comes into that wild, dark place and says, I'm going to change I'm going to change your motivational system. I'm going to, the, the gospel of Christ comes into that darkness and says, I'm going to empower you. I'm going to motivate you through a whole nother, whole nother changing system. It's the, it's the story of Monsters Incorporated, the old Pixar movie that, that's generations old now. Monsters whose city was powered by the fear of little children. And so they would go into closets and, and hide under beds. And in the darkness of their night, they'd scare them and they'd gather up their little canisters of fear and take it back to their monster world in another dimension behind the closet door. And they would power their system with these little canisters of fear that they gathered from the little children in their rooms until a little child mistakenly sneaks into the world. Because she fell in love with one of the monsters. And while she's playing with that monster that she's fell in love with, and he fell in love with her too, and they're, and they're playing together, 
she giggles and the city lights up. And she, they discover that laughter, that joy, that love has more power than fear. And the gospel, the gospel the, of, of the king, the Christ, the, the Christmas tells us that there is a greater motivational power, there is a greater force at work in our world than fear. That, what, that our human heart, guilt and fear, we think are the most powerful tools that motivate, and that's, that's, how, that's how bosses, that's how parents, that's how friendships, that's how mothers, that's how everybody motivates because that's all we think we have. That's how religion motivates. And the gospel of Christ says, I'm going to change your whole motivational structure. What if I were to free you from fear? What if I were to free you? What the gospel comes in, the Christmas comes and says, what if I were to free you from fear? What would motivate you? What if you were motivated? What if you were empowered? What if the choices you made weren't based on protection from fear and loss? But what if your choices and your motivation for the things that you do were motivated out of love and gratitude? That's what Christmas, that's what Christmas comes to in the wilderness of that darkness. And until we become despaired of every other possible option, until we discover the utter desolation of the options we have chosen, we will never meet Jesus. The wilderness is where we meet him. The wilderness, it, when we've despaired of every other opportunity, when we come to the end of our rope, the end of our, and, and, and here's the thing, we, you don't have to come to the end of your rope in a, in a circumstantial way. It doesn't, requ- it doesn't require circumstantial end of rope experiences. It requires an end of rope in the spirit of the heart. A desperation of heart. Why did all these people in John's day, Mark's day, John's day, they're both, past, they're both in this passage. Why did the people in the days of John the Baptist, why were they running to the wilderness from the town? Why were they flooding out to go? He's out there in the wilderness, crazy nut dressed in fur and belts and eating locusts and honey. What the heck? Why were they running out to him? Because they were desperate for what he was talking about. They were desperate for forgiveness. They were desperate to have their debts covered. They were desperate to tell him the condition of their lives and go, I've messed up. I've completely damaged everything. I am in a wilderness and I am without hope. And John says, I can give you hope. I can cleanse you from that. Step in the water and let me pour it on you. Let me wash you. Christmas begins in the wilderness of our lives, but it begins when we come to the realization, when we come to the awareness of our need. When we come to the awareness of how much we need Christmas 
And by Christmas, I mean the grace of God, the entrance of a king, the, the salvation of a, of a savior. How much do we need rescue? And, th- and that's not just true in a first-time way. Certainly, certainly, if you've never known Jesus, if you've, if you've never contemplated, or maybe you have contemplated Jesus, and you've, and you've, and you've given him a shot, you know, or, you, or, you've, or you're still contemplating Jesus, um, the reality of who he is and not the caricature that often happens around Christmas or that happens in religion. But when you, con- when you contemplate the real Jesus, there's a sense where um, we don't, we don't know, I mean, in a first-time way, you certainly come to the realization of Jesus when I could become aware of my need of him, my need of rescue. But this is always true along the pathway of having discovered him. No matter how long you have known Jesus, your, the, the depth of understanding, the, the, the rescue, the sense of the power of his grace in your life is always tied to the realization of your need of him. If you don't feel a desperate moment-by-moment need of him right now, then the power of his grace is very small. What did Jesus say to the woman who was washing his feet and drying his feet with her hair? At the banquet at Simon's house, Simon was looking down his nose at this woman saying, well, if Jesus only knew who she was and what kind of reputation she has in town, he wouldn't be so thrilled with her washing his feet and drying it with her hair. And Jesus, knowing his condescension, understanding how he was dismissive of her, of her contrition, he looks at Simon and says, she, has, she loves much. Because she has been forgiven much. She knows her need. She knows the desperation of her life. She knows the wilderness of her experience. She understands the betrayal that she has brought upon me. And yet here she is, having been forgiven much. She loves much. And he says to Simon, when I came in here, you didn't didn't even wash my feet. You, I mean, for, but just simple washing, which was the custom. Nobody washed my feet. But here she is, washing my feet with her tears, drying them with her hair. Why is, that, why is this her condition? And you are in the condition of condescension, of looking down your nose at people like this. What creates the difference in that attitude? Christmas came to her. Christmas didn't come to you, and that's because you didn't understand. You have no awareness of your sin. You have no awareness of your culpability. She has an utter, complete awareness of her, uh, in that moment, of her culpability, of her, of how she was responsible for her condition and how she's desperately, desperately reaching out for rescue and knows that rescue can be found in the Savior who comes to the wilderness. That's true, not just in a first-time way, but in an ongoing time way. The gospel doesn't produce condescension. It doesn't produce a sense of superiority. It produces an ongoing sense of how much I desperately need. The longer you know Jesus, who is the light, Jesus says, I am the light. Whoever comes to me will never live in darkness. The part, of the, part of the benefit of having the light of Jesus in your life 
and in my life is that it, it, shines, it shines bright in the wilderness of my life. And so I am, not, I am not without hope. I am not without a sense of comfort in that wilderness, in that darkness. He comes into the darkness of my life. He lights it up, and I feel much better. But the other, the other not so sort of warm and fuzzy part of the light is that it shines in the dark places you've been trying to keep dark and that you didn't know existed in your life. And so it's shining in those dark little corners and those recesses in those basements and attics of your life and heart that maybe you have long since locked off. And Jesus is saying, I want to clean those. I want to bring light to those places. You didn't know you needed me here. You knew you needed me here, and that's why you welcomed me in, and that's why there's power of forgiveness and power of grace here. But there are places in your life you're blind to that you don't know you need me, and I want to bring light to those places. That's the kind of Savior we have. He, he comes without warning. He enters. One, one theologian, when talking about the virgin birth, he comes to a, is that he says that Jesus enters in a place that says, no, do not enter. He comes to a place that says, do not enter. And in your life is the same way. Jesus will come without warning because he loves you and shines in places that you may not know you had. And maybe the light of Christ comes in the, maybe it comes, maybe the light of Christ comes to the dark place of your heart that you're not aware of through a sermon, maybe through a comment made by a friend, maybe through a joke told by a child. maybe through an incessant nagging of a spouse, maybe through the simple reading of his word. But Christmas comes through the wilderness, comes when we become aware of our desperate need. Christmas begins, it comes with a king with a king who goes not to a throne, but goes to a cross, as Tim Keller would say. Goes to a, goes to a cross, not to a throne. It says, when, when Mark started his gospel, he said, the beginning of the gospel, the good news, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, that wasn't his last name, it was his title. <laughs> Christ, the anointed one, the king. He's arrived. He is the Son of God and therefore King of all creation. And He comes to the wilderness. And, and normally in the day and age in which John existed and in the day and age when Mark existed and is writing this story about Jesus, what normally would happen is when a king had been, uh, when a king, uh, an earthly king, had already vanquished the the. <clears throat> had already vanquished the, the enemies of the territory and he was coming back into town, normally the king would send ahead of him the heralds saying, the king is coming. Make way for the king so that he can come back to his throne. And so there's a sense where John, by the way, John the Baptist, the Gospel of Luke tells us that John the Baptist 
was the first was the first person to recognize Jesus on the earth. He was six months in his mother's womb. The first person to recognize Jesus was an unborn child. Mary shows up at Elizabeth's door and says, I'm pregnant. I heard you're pregnant. And Elizabeth's comment to her was, the minute I saw you, the baby inside me leapt for joy at your approach because of what of because of the child you bear. The king has come. The king is coming and he's announcing that he's been victorious over the powers of darkness, over the evil that exists in our world, over the sin and death and destruction that we have brought into this world and its penalty because of, because of that. He has been victorious over those things, but yet he does not go to a throne as an earthly king would go. What Mark describes for us throughout the rest of his gospel is that he is the king who goes, who takes the low road. He is the king who goes to the cross, not to the throne. The king who takes into himself, who takes into himself that which has been the destructive power in our lives, who takes that into himself and pays for it at the cross. His crown was not made of gold or bronze, wasn't covered in jewels. It was a crown of thorns. Crown of thorns, a crown of suffering to take into himself our wilderness, our, our, our dark wildness and pay for it. To pay for it so that you and I would never have to pay for it. That the forgiveness, that the forgiveness we desperately know we need, we can have. Because he has covered our sins and that Christmas is its beginning. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you come to the wilderness of our lives and that you take into yourself that greatest of all wilderness, the desolation, the desertion of your Father for our sake, that we would never be deserted by him. Inasmuch as we know our need come to you desperately seeking through faith that you would make us whole. Thank you, Father. I pray that you bless us even as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.